All right, let's open our Bibles this morning now to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. We're in chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. So that's our text, 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 17. The topic we'll find there is this. Michael pretends David is sick in bed and incurs Saul's wrath when the king realizes that David is gone. The title of our message this morning, Bed, Wrath, and Be Gone. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. And now as we approach it humbly, Lord, we desire that it would uh, refresh us in the knowledge of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, that we would be refreshed in your love, that we would know how much you love us, that love proven for us once and for all on the cross when you died to set men free from their sins and to grant them eternal life, all those who would believe. And I pray that we would have a a rush of emotion, actually, Lord, as we consider what you have done for us in saving us, what you continue to do on a daily basis in filling us and saving us and using us and how you're going to bring us to glory one day. I pray that our cares would be cast upon you at this moment and that our whole focus would be on uh, what you want to say to us in the energy and the power of your Holy Spirit through the Word of God which you've given us. Bless our time studying your Word now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Christian is a witness. It isn't something we choose. It's something we are. The moment we are saved, we become witnesses of the grace of God through Jesus Christ to forgive sins. In a court of law, some witnesses are more credible than others. One thing lawyers will try to do is to impeach the credibility of a witness in some way so that the judge or the jurors will disregard his or her testimony. As Christians, we certainly want to be credible. We don't want anything to impeach our credibility as witnesses. We don't want our testimony to be disregarded because it's just so important that people hear about Jesus. What kind of things would impeach our credibility? Well, I'm sure we could come up with a long list of things, or we could see it illustrated for us here in this text. King Saul was trying to kill David. He enlisted the help of both his son, Jonathan, and his daughter, Michael. This is kind of a Father's Day message then. I'm just kidding. Brother and sister both had mad love for David. Jonathan had a pure brotherly love for David. Michael loved him with a strong marital love. They both acted commendably to save David's life, but their methods were very different. Jonathan confronted the situation directly and told the truth. Michael used deceit and told a lie. In both cases, David was spared, but Jonathan's witness was unimpeachable while Michael's was not. There's one glaring fact in the text, one big difference between Jonathan and Michael. You see it in verse 13 where it says, Michael took an image and laid it in the bed. The word for image is the Hebrew teraphim. It was a household god, an idol that she kept handy. I'm sure there were many other differences between Jonathan and Michael, but the one the Holy Spirit wants to focus our thinking upon is that Jonathan kept himself from idols while Michael kept idols for herself. In the New Testament, we are encouraged to keep ourselves from idols. An idol is any person or anything, really, that takes the place of our affection for the Lord. 
An idol will impeach our witness because it is obvious that our affection for Jesus is less than it ought to be given all that he is and has done for us. So if we're giving testimony to Jesus, to his greatness and to his glory, but we're also harboring idols or committing idolatry, then our testimony is impeachable because we don't believe what we're saying. And so I want then to approach this text in a way that will encourage us to be Jonathan's rather than Michael's. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your witness for Jesus Christ has weight when you keep yourself from idols. Number two, your witness for Jesus Christ is weakened when you keep idols for yourself. Let's look at Jonathan first in verses 1 through 7, keeping ourselves from idols. And let's get right into the story in verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Jonathan was faced with a moral dilemma. Saul wanted David dead. Now, it may seem an easy situation to us as armchair ethicists, but it was pretty tangled for Jonathan if you put yourself in his situation. For one thing, he uh, this was the order of the king uh, and, and kings were pretty powerful. For another thing, this was the will of his father. The king was also his father. And for a third thing, Jonathan was next in line to be the king after Saul, but that was never going to happen if David remained alive. In a sense, it was in Jonathan's best earthly interest for David to be killed. Jonathan determined to tackle the problem head on. Verse 2, so Jonathan told David, saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Now, I'm pretty sure Saul would have seen this as a betrayal. Uh, That's not hard to understand. On Jonathan's part, he continued to respect the office of the king as well as honor his father while also doing the right thing in warning David. And so it was a, it was a, pretty, a pretty big dilemma for him, but he was managing to navigate through it. And to do it, he put his own life in jeopardy for determining to talk honestly to Saul about the situation. And so one thing we might say, and to tuck away in our thinking, if you are ever faced with a moral dilemma, and I guess we should say when you are, because you will be, you should do the right thing, putting yourself on the line if necessary, do it in a way that shows respect even for the wrongdoers. It's a simple yet biblical model. Uh, And whoever you think of, whether it was Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in, uh, you know, Babylon and then later in Medo-Persia, they were men like Jonathan, who put themselves on the line while they continued to respect the authority that was over them, even though it was wicked authority, and they did the right thing, uh, assuming the consequences that would come. Sometimes we're prone, or human beings are prone to lie or to deceit because we're trying to avoid the consequences, and the consequences can be severe. Uh, But uh, we want to do the right thing and keep those other things in balance. And so those are the elements, respect for authority, doing the right thing, 
not holding my own life dear. As I, if I can juggle those three things, then I am I'm on board with Joseph and Daniel and Jonathan and others. Verse 4, Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Now, Jonathan had a boldness in talking to Saul. Twice he told Saul that what he had planned against David was sin. He didn't water down the message one bit. He didn't practice any piece of political correctness. He didn't say it was a bad idea. Uh, you know, he used the S word. He used the sin word. At some point in our testimony as witnesses for Jesus Christ, we're going to have to tell people that they are sinners. Jesus came to save us from sin. All have sinned and fall short of the perfection that God requires. No one is going to heaven without the intervention of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how good a person is. The best person that ever lived with the best track record still falls far short of the glory or the perfection of God. They're not going to make it to heaven uh, by virtue of their status as a human being, a fallen human being. All have sinned, but through faith in Jesus Christ, a person can be saved. And so we have to deal with the sin issue at some point. Uh, and let people know that they're sinners. People need to know that there's something to be saved from. Why do I need Jesus Christ in my life? Uh, some people, they have some idea of what it means to be a Christian, and it, it's usually not a good idea. It usually has to do with giving up things. They see Christians, and all they see is people who've given up things. They've given up sleeping in Sunday morning. They've given up doing their yard work on Sunday. They've given up a whole day, practically, uh, to, why would you want to do that when you've got these other things to do and all? Or something else, they've given up some vice or whatever. Uh, and, and so you need to let them know that they're not giving something up, they're gaining something, but they need to know that there's a reason for it. And the reason for it is, what profit is it for you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Your soul is at stake, you're not going to heaven. I don't care what you think, I don't care how nice you think you are, how good you think you are, I don't care what you do or who you say you are, you are not going to heaven without the help of Jesus Christ, without the personal intervention of Jesus Christ, without faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's a real issue there. There's an eternity there, and people need to know that there's a sin issue. Jesus took his life in his hands, and he killed not just a Goliath, but all the Goliaths that were marshaled against the human race. On the cross, he overcame sin and death and the devil. You know, talk about some forces, man, sin, death, the devil. But Jesus defeated them all. And it brought great deliverance, not just for Israel, but for the entire human race, we believe, for whosoever will believe in him. And so that's the issue. And so Jonathan boldly goes to his father and, and, and says to him, you are sinning in your thoughts and desires against David. 
And it's a reminder to us that at some point, people need to know that they're sinners. God loves them, but they're not going to heaven without Jesus Christ. And so that's our testimony as witnesses. It gains credibility if our lives are consistent. Our lives and how we live them don't affect these facts at all. Jesus came. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's coming again. Nothing can change that. But whether or not we are heard when we say that makes a difference uh, in terms of how we are living our lives. If someone looks at you and thinks, I hear you, but obviously knowing Jesus makes no difference in your life, you're just like me. Uh, you do everything that I do. You say everything that I say. You struggle with everything I struggle with. I don't see you in love with Jesus Christ at all. Uh, and so w what's the attraction? Where's the power that you're speaking of? It doesn't change the facts. It changed the reception of them. Jonathan gave his testimony. He put it all out there. He was an unimpeachable witness. There was nothing you could say about Jonathan. And so verse 6, so Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. For the time being, Saul was swayed by the testimony of Jonathan. Later in their relationship, he's going to try to kill Jonathan. He's going to try and throw a spear at him for defending David. Just as a footnote, Saul might have been the very worst spear thrower of all time. He's constantly trying to spear David. He can't spear his son. Uh, I don't know, you know, I, you ever think, I mean, I can't hardly see anything without my glasses anymore. How about you? You know, it's, it's rough. I can make out some things. I do the little trick where you look through a little tube in your hand. You know, oh yeah, that's, that's shampoo, you know, and stuff. I can't see anything. Uh, and so I give these, I cut these guys some slack. You know, sometimes people say, well, how did they not recognize Jesus in the garden? Well, first of all, it was dark and night. Secondly, they were all probably like me, half blind. You know, they didn't have pearl vision in those days or lens crafters and stuff. And so it was difficult. But, but having said that, I mean, Saul is throwing spears in probably small settings. He's in a room. He's in the music room with David or he's at dinner with Jonathan. And it's like he, he must have had, you know, a spear handy all the time. It's his favorite implement, you know. He's like one of these guys that, you know, had a spear on his back. And he would just cast that thing and he missed every time. And so just, you know, take some spear lessons or something. But anyway, verse 7, Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. Not exactly singing Kumbaya uh, because in his presence as in times past, meant David would again be called upon to play the harp when Saul was troubled by an evil spirit. It meant he would be dodging the spears that Saul was throwing at him. Both Jonathan and David were called upon to do the right thing, putting their lives in jeopardy, but showing respect for authority. And so are you. Hopefully not in so dramatic a situation as to threaten your life. If you've been having trouble at work or with a teacher at school and you notice tomorrow they have a spear uh, you, might, you might want to take a day off or call in sick or whatever. Uh, so it's usually not that dramatic. It's usually not a life 
situation, but it could be a livelihood situation. Maybe whether at home or at work or in school, somewhere you face a moral dilemma that will affect you. If your life is all about Jesus, it's going to be easier to do the right thing, put your livelihood in jeopardy and still show respect for authority because you will immediately realize that there's something more going on, something spiritual. The situation is not really about you as much as it's about the Lord in you, about your witness to his power to sustain you. I mean, by definition, you're a Christian. And whether you say this or not, you're a person that that says through your life, I have a power that you don't have. I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me. And so you've got to expect that situations are going to come your way that test that reality. Where is this power? How does this power work? What does it do under extreme stress, intention, with pressure, when you're mistreated, all of that? That's our lot as Christians. There was nothing else in Jonathan's life to compete with his love for the Lord, and so he put it all on the line with an unimpeachable testimony. But there was something else in Michael's life, and it would impeach her as a witness. And so we'll see in verses 8 through 17, your witness for Jesus is weakened when you keep idols for yourself. Now, as a piece of Bible trivia, commentators point out that Michael is the only woman in Scripture who is actually said to love her husband. Others certainly did. We're not suggesting there wasn't any love. It's obvious that there was, but it's only mentioned of her. It's an important detail, I think, to the point we're making. She loved David, but she still kept an idol hidden in the house. If I try to see that as an illustration for my own life, it's telling me that I can love Jesus, but still be drawn away by idols. Hence the warning of the Apostle John at the end of his first letter, little children talking to believers who love the Lord, keep yourself from idols. And so we pick it up now in verse 8. There was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Could be a different spear technique here, by the way. It seems to me from the reading that he kept his spear and chased David with it and tried to pin him to the wall. Uh, he started to realize, he, I'm not having so much success throwing my spear, so I'll just use it this other way. Now, here's a question for all of us. How long would we go on working for Saul? There came a point at which David had to remove himself from the situation in order to save his life. But he hung in there as long as he could, and I dare say longer than I would. We must cultivate an understanding that our lives are not our own. They belong to the Lord. Thus, he must release us from serving in a particular situation before we can leave. Now, I would qualify that by saying this. We end up doing whatever we want most of the time. We leave things, go someplace else, get a different job, move to another church, get out of a marriage, whatever it might be. We do a lot of that on our own. God doesn't necessarily stop us from doing those things. What I'm talking about is just the, in the pure understanding that in my life, 
I ought to think if my life belongs to the Lord, it's not up to me when I leave a particular situation. It's up to the Lord. He must release me. It's not up to me to analyze the circumstances and conclude on my own, I'm not going to take this anymore because I'm always uh, going to go for the bigger, better, best situation. Uh, I'm, I'm not prone to think I'm going to stay in this terrible situation or I'm going to choose a terrible situation. I mean, if you're out in the job hunt and they come to you and say, we've got this sweet job for you with retirement, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or you can work over here where you might not even get paid uh, and there's no joy in it and the boss is a cruel taskmaster, you're not going to choose that, are you? No, of course not. But then you get into certain jobs where they promised you this and you find out that it was this and then you think, I'm going to get out of this. I can't. I don't need to take this. And, and I'm, I'm suggesting that though that may be the case and that you don't always have to stay in every situation that you're in all the time, you still need to have a sense that, Lord, are you releasing me from this? Because if I'm not here, what Christian is going to be here to testify of your love and your grace and your mercy to these people who are just awful? I mean, we all agree they're awful. But somebody else is going to have to do it if I'm not doing it. So we need to have the Lord release us. In World War II at the Battle of Iwo Jima, it's estimated that 33% of the landing force was killed. Fully one-third of our brave men died. Do you think they understood the odds as the amphibious vehicles were approaching the shore? They did. But they still put themselves in harm's way. They didn't analyze the situation and decide there must be a better way. After all, what do the generals and admirals know? Their lives no longer belonged to them. They were part of a greater cause, a greater effort. How much more can we as believers submit to the authority of the Lord? When we find ourselves in, uh, in times of trouble, we are part of a greater cause, the exampling of the gospel and of the power of a transformed life. And so verse 11, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Michael was a lot like Jonathan. Both stood in a relation to Saul. Both loved David. Both determined to warn and help David at great personal risk. might have been riskier for Michael uh, as a woman, as a daughter in those days with no rights and, and, and all. But then suddenly we're given a detail about Michael that alters our opinion of her. It's verse 13. And Michael took an image, says in the New King James Version, and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So let's talk teraphim for a moment. There's a lot of conjecture about exactly what they were. Uh, no one is really 100% sure because of different archaeological things. The implied size and the fact that Michael could pretend that one was David led the rabbis to think that they were heads, probably mummified human heads. According to at least one ancient source, teraphim were made from the heads of slaughtered firstborn male adult humans, shaved, salted, spiced, with a golden plate placed under the tongue, and magic words engraved upon the plate. It was believed that the teraphim, when mounted on the wall, 
would talk to people. Similar to those trout that you put on your wall. Remember when that was big? Maybe it still is around here, but... uh, That was a great Christmas gift. There were several. There was the trout and then there was a a deer head, you know, and stuff. And you'd walk by and it would start singing to you, you know, and stuff. And it's uh, I've actually bought some of those. So I, you know, I put myself in there. But uh, so uh, now, interesting, while we're thinking about that, during the excavation of Jericho by Kathleen Kenyon, evidence of the use of human skulls was uncovered, which lends credence to the rabbinical conjecture. And so it could be, at least in part, that these teraphim were these crazy human skulls turned into idols. And so now you can see why, you know, it it could pass for David's head and the rest of him just kind of puffed up in the bed. Now, did David know about this? Did he tolerate this? We're not told because that's not the point the Holy Spirit wants to make. And so I don't want to get off on some conjecture one way or the other. What is the point? Well, the idol took the place of David in the bed. We might say that Michael kept idols for herself and they eventually took the place of the one she loved. An idol, by definition, takes the place of the one you love. Since any person or anything can be an idol, I can't really make a list. But neither can I ignore the New Testament warning to keep myself from idols. I must therefore honestly allow the Holy Spirit to search my heart to search my mind, to reveal to me what things have become or are becoming idols, things competing for the affection I owe the one I love, the one who loved me before the foundation of the earth. Verse 14, So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed, and I'll kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Now, because she started with the idol, everything surrounding Michael's testimony was a deceit. It was a lie. She was trying to do the right thing, but went about it the wrong way. The Holy Spirit is not here answering the question, can a Christian ever lie? That's an ethical question. If you're interested in that, The class that Jacob's teaching, the book on Christian ethics, has a section on that you might want to read. He's not giving an apologetic in this text. He's doing something, I think, more foundational, showing us that our answer, when in the heat of the moment, has a lot to do with where our heart is set at that moment. In other words, you can have your opinion about how you might act or react to a moral dilemma based on your study of the Word and the suggested Christian responses. You can say, well, I've studied this out, and here's what these men say, this is what I would do in this situation. But I think that your actual response when faced with a decision like this is going to have more to do with whether or not the Lord is your first and true love at that time. And, and because I think the Holy Spirit will empower you and give you the words to say, tell you what to do, but you can't have a divided heart at that time. And so, yes, we need the apologetic. We need to have an idea about Christians and lying and Christians in this and Christians. That's all very important. But none of it is as important as just your heart before the Lord. We were uh, talking in the back about 
uh, people putting themselves in harm's way, giving their lives for others, taking the place of those that are in danger. And I, I quite honestly said, I don't know if I could do that. And you don't know if you can do that until you're faced with that. And in the Christian life, a lot of times you don't know what you're capable of until you're faced with it. You better be faced with it filled with the Holy Spirit, is what we're saying. Because then when you are, you make the right decisions because the Lord is leading you. Verse 17, Then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Michael saved David's life, but listen to her testimony about David. She insinuated that David threatened to kill her. Coming from a place of idolatry, Michael's testimony was false, impugning the character of David. If we harbor idols, our testimony will be in some measure false, and it will impugn the character of Jesus. On a very basic level, if we are telling people Jesus can change their lives when they ought to see evidence that our lives or excuse me, then they ought to see evidence that our lives have been changed. For example, let's say I'm in one of those difficult situations at home or at work or in school. If my reaction is the same as a person who doesn't know Jesus, then how is my testimony validated? If I grumble and complain and seek to be released rather than patiently endure, returning blessing for cursing, then those looking on will wonder what difference does it make to have this Holy Spirit indwelling a person? It still makes all the difference in the world and especially in the world to come. But the non-believer may not see it and therefore not be convinced that Jesus is essential. How do you recognize idols in your life? One Christian author suggested the following. Here are four things we can concentrate on. Any enjoyment forbidden by God when indulged, that's an idol. Great desire for non-great things is a sign that they are becoming idols. When something tends to make me not think of God when I'm doing it, that has become an idol. And when something or someone causes me to abandon my duties and responsibilities, whatever those are, that is idolatry. As I said earlier, the list of things is endless. It's more about the place Jesus occupies in your heart. Your witness is weakened when you keep idols for yourself. Instead, keep yourself from idols, from any person or anything that competes for the affection you have for the Lord who saved you and who loves you unconditionally. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. I appreciate being able to deliver them to your people, your people who love you, who are in love with you and want to grow deeper in their walk with you. I pray for myself and everyone hearing, Lord, that we would uh, think about idolatry. You didn't warn unbelievers to keep themselves from idols. You warned believers, those of us who love you. And we see a few ways that we can challenge our own hearts, Lord, to see if any person or thing has become an idol, taking the place of your affection. Beyond that, Lord, we want to understand that uh, you are great. You're a big God. That you know all about the situations that we are in. The most difficult, the most dark, the most dangerous situations, they're not news to you. You've perhaps even designed them for a greater good, for our good and your glory. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would have a sense that our lives do not belong to us. And that if we're going to do anything, we need to be released to do it. And that the gospel would fill our hearts, Lord. Not just the sharing of the gospel, not just the giving testimony verbally, Lord, but that through our lives we would be examples of the gospel. Of joy, of abiding, of blessing, of mercy and grace and love and all the things that uh, ought to mark a transformed life. And Lord, there's nothing for it for for us to realize that that's what you've made us. That's who we are as Christians. It's our, it's our DNA, as we might say. When you gave the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, you weren't telling us what to do or become. You were telling us what we are. We are those things. We tend to forget it. Whether it's the world or our own flesh or the devil, Lord, we, we are brought down. We spiral down back to a, a carnality that shouldn't be spoken of among your people. And I pray that we would be elevated, Lord, to the remembrance of who we are in Jesus Christ, your beloved children, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and that we would live life from that position and that others would marvel at the grace of God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.